So, 1 Peter, we have done an overview. We've looked at the first two verses. We're now going to look at verses 3 to 5. Now, if you remember back to Ephesians 1, when we started Ephesians 1, we saw 3 to 14, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, was this extensive description of the gospel. And I think we broke it up into six or seven parts. But as we came to each part, we read the whole thing again. We kept reading over and over 3 to 14 as a reminder of this being a cohesive teaching. So we're going to do the same with 1 Peter here, or the fir- at least the first part of 1 Peter. I'm going to read 1 Peter 3 uh, down to verse 12, and then I'm going to reread 3 to 5, which is what we'll be looking at today. So if you have your Bibles, join with me as we look at this incredible picture of the gospel. 1 Peter 1, 3-12 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, he, see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, attaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was, was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Since from heaven, things sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's go back to 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for this word.
Holy, holy, holy are you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can gather as your people, your chosen family, a holy priesthood. Lord, we thank you that we are your people, who were once not your people, but we are now your people. We are your people through the blood of Christ, that we have been given new life, a life that is eternal. We've been given life from his death and his resurrection. We were once born into Adam and born in sin. We are now born to righteousness. Lord, as the gospel produces good fruit in us, may we uphold the holiness that Christ has demonstrated to us. May we, by the Holy Spirit, crucify the flesh along with its desires. And may we walk as slaves to righteousness. May this passage, Lord, become a backbone for us, that we may stand tall as exiles with confidence, unfading and unmoved by the deceitfulness of this world. And Lord, that as your kingdom comes, we will celebrate as every stronghold and every authority is put under your feet. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. R.C. Sproul is a man who I much admire. He has passed and gone to the, be with the Lord uh, about four, five years ago in 2017. When he was a young man, he sat into a lecture theatre as he studied the scriptures or sat under teaching. And he said this rang through his mind and sat with him for the rest of his life. The lecturer said, gentlemen, all sound theology must begin and end with doxology. When theology does not begin and end with doxology, it becomes merely an abstract intellectual exercise in which the heart is not engaged and the soul is not properly moved. Okay, I said two, theological, uh, two biblical words there, intellectual words, I, I, I guess. And what I want to do is explain that to you to start how, or to, to help us understand how Peter starts his letter. Theology is the study of God. Theo is God. Ology is the word logos, which is word. It's word and God. So we're looking at words of God. That is theology. We want to understand the words of God. And theology matters because we have a faith that is heard and a faith that is taught. And in Romans 10, it tells us that faith comes through hearing. Faith comes through hearing the knowledge of God. Without knowledge, you cannot have faith in God. So if our theology matters, then theology has to lead us to doxology. Now, doxa means glory, and of course, ology means, it comes from logos, which means words, so words of glory. Words of glory, or another way of saying it is words of praise. So if we are studying intellectually the Bible, understanding more of the knowledge of God, every bit of knowledge we have of God should lead us to praise God, should lead us to worship God. And if it doesn't lead us to worship God, if the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the story of the creation of the world and the Psalms that we read don't lead you to worship God, then it is merely pointless. It is not worth anything to you. You must come to a place of worship as we grow in our understanding of God. 
So both matter. Theology matters and is not just for the theologian or the pastor who teaches at the front. In fact, the writer of Hebrews corrects the church when they stay on uh, milk and not move on to solid food, speaking of the Word of God. He condemns them that he, uh, or, 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 or corrects them and reproves them that they are still living in an immature state of belief and calls them to study the greater things of God. So it's important that we understand that the knowledge of God is what brings us to faith. And it's through hearing this knowledge, through reading it aloud, through preaching the gospel that we hear and are born again and have faith. And from faith, it produces doxology, praise. And from praise, it produces wisdom, practical living in response to the knowledge of God. We take knowledge, we praise God, and we go on to wisdom. Our life changes. When we, experience it, when we experience God, our life changes. So this is where Peter starts. He starts his teaching on the knowledge of God with the praise of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is how he starts all his teaching about the knowledge. He wants you, church, to worship God with all your heart and mind as you ponder being born again to a living hope with an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That should cause you to worship and glory in God. And that is what Peter wants us to do. Not only does it, is it what Peter wants us to do, it's what Paul wanted us to do back in Ephesians. If we remember the same words were repeated in Ephesians 1, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, who has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Peter, uh, Paul in Ephesians does exactly the same thing that Peter is going to do, where he says, This is what I want you to do. I want you to worship as you grow in understanding of these great and wonderful truths in the Scripture. And then states them one after the other. And Peter will do the same. He'll say, this is where you are meant to be. So right off the bat, we do have a a sort of lesson to learn or maybe a correction to make in our own discipleship of one another or even ourselves. When you have knowledge, when you've come to a new theological position, understanding something new about God, are you with your brother and sister there to win an argument, there to prove them wrong, or there to lead them to praise? Because Paul and all the apostles were only ever there to lead the person to praise. He wanted to correct them, of course. Believe this because this will lead you to praise. Believe that God is sovereign over all things and that His His purpose for suffering has a plan behind it and He wants you to come to a place of praise. May that be our motivation as well. May our motivation in every conversation start with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then go on to some teaching of the grand works of God. That the person we speak to or the own heart of ours would go away blessing God all the more. So let's think about this doxology here, this worship of God that Peter starts with. The word blessed occurs more time toward God than towards us. 
We are, of course, are blessed by God, but in the scriptures, it calls us to bless God all the more. Now, we, would, we can be quite, quite confused by what this word means. What does it mean to bless God? Well, when we look at understanding what it means to bless God, we have to realize that He is the one where all blessings come from. He gives us everything, and He gives to all human beings everything. The common graces on this earth are a blessing to every human being. The fact that they can breathe, the fact that they can enjoy nature, the sunshine, the cool air, the ocean, the food that we have is a common grace to all mankind. And all of mankind should say, bless the Lord who is the blesser who has given me all these things. So we we actually have nothing to give back to God. In our doxology at the end of the service, we're going to look at Romans 11, the end of it, which says that we have nothing to give him, no counsel, nothing that he he has given us all that we have. So therefore, what do we do? We say, bless yourself, God. Glorify yourself, live in yourself, love yourself, be happy in yourself. And for God and God alone, that is not selfish because there is nothing higher than God. So when we say bless the Lord, we are actually saying, God, love yourself. God, be happy in yourself. God, enjoy yourself because you are the highest of all joy and there is nothing I have to give you but yourself. God does all things for his glory. God does all things for his glory. In the great Psalm, Psalm 23, we all know that it says he leads us uh, by still waters. It's the, that beautiful phrase that he makes us lie down in green pastures. But it actually says, for your name's sake. Not for me or David, not for David, but for your name's sake. Even in the most beautiful Psalm and one of the most quoted Psalms, we see so clearly that God does all things for his own glory and for his highest joy, which is in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which brings us to the very next line, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a really interesting phrase. Because what Peter does here, and we don't really notice it in our English text, is that he attributes deity and sovereignty to both God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he associates God the Father... And then he uses the word Lord to associate Jesus as Yahweh of the Old Old Testament. This word Lord here is only used for Yahweh in the Old Testament. And I could give you the words, the word is Adonai, uh, but you can look that up later for yourselves. Right here, what Peter is saying is God, God the Father and God the Son are both sovereign and one and have supreme authority over all things. They are not divided, which is why one of the very first creeds of Scripture was a simple line that said, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It was simple, but it made a very clear statement. Jesus is sovereign as Yahweh is sovereign. Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament in human flesh. The Jews would come and meet one another and if you were a Jewish Christian, you'd say, Jesus is Lord, and they would respond, Jesus is Lord, in knowing that they agreed that Jesus was the Lord of the Old Testament, Yahweh of the Old Testament, the same Yahweh that sent Moses to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Jesus is Lord. 
So in the worship of, uh, of God, we see Peter focus on God the Father and the Lordship of Jesus and saying they are one and the same. They are two persons in one God and they glorify themselves. This is the weightiness of God. The depth of his character is so revealed in this, this short sentence that he is both Father and Son. And of course, in our introduction, he attributes the Holy Spirit in the same part in, in verse 2. He gives the Holy Spirit the same credibility as the Father and the Son. Two per, three persons of one God, all equal in power, all sovereign. And we worship them as individuals and as one. I think it was R.C. Sproul said that when I think of the one, I'm, when I think of the one, I am led to an individual person, and when I think of another one, I am led to the other. When we ponder God, it leads us to all three members of the Trinity as we worship Him. Blessed be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, for He is great. In Psalm 145, we see this exaltation. It says, I will exalt you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I'll bless you and I'll praise your name forever and ever. Great is Yahweh and highly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. So that is the doxology in which Peter will start and he is calling us to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as we understand the truths of the gospel, the richness of the gospel. And in such few sentences, he is going to give you enough backbone that you will stand firm in a world as exiles. Remember, we started in our overview that, that what Peter is doing is giving you Rio for a firmness, that you will be unmoved that you may come across deceitful teaching, that you may come across heresy, that you may suffer for righteousness' sake, but because of the truth that he has laid out, you will not move to the right or to the left. So here, here is what he states. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So let's break this up. Great mercy is what we want to start with. According to His great mercy, we want to know and understand the attributes of God, His characteristics. And one of those is His great mercies. The first word we want to sort of unpack a bit more is great. We have used this and, and made it more shallow in our day because we say all sorts of things are great. Uh, things that are actually really ungreat. Maybe it's great food or, or great clothing or great, it's a, it's a great whatever. It's just not that great. But in the scriptures, when we read the word great, it means large or weighty or majestic grandeur. Something that when you encounter, you will tremble. You're out in the ocean on a boat and a huge wave lifts you up. That is great. That is a majestic grandeur. You're on a tall mountain and you feel small and insignificant. Or you're in a storm and the lightning and the thunder is rolling all you. That is a great storm. It's weighty. It's large. It's, it's something that you feel like you are out of control. And no matter what you do, you can't change it. That is God. God is great. As it said in Psalm 145, great is Yahweh. His greatness is unsearchable. 
So when we think of the word great, let us build that weight upon it, that it's not just something ordinary, but it's something that will make you tremble and fear. And God is great. And here, His mercy is great. His mercy should make us feel a weightiness, a trembling before Him as we can't do anything about His mercy. If He bestows mercy upon you, it is upon you and you will change. If you encounter God, you'll be transformed, which is exactly what this says. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. He caused us to be born again is our very next phrase. His great mercy is so weighty, so magnificent, so majestically uh, 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 glorious that it will change you. So much so it will bring you to new life. This is really important. In these two words, he caught, or three words, he has caused, it reveals that your faith has nothing to do with you. People are not elect because they have faith, but they are elected to faith. Faith comes after being born again. You do not have faith and then suddenly you are born again. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You followed after the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. Therefore, you would never choose God unless you died to your old self and rose to life in faith. Faith is the fruit of being born again. Faith is the result of God's electing grace. So his great mercy is that you have done nothing. You have encountered the living God and you have done nothing and now you are born again. So to think about being born again and why? Why do we need to be born again? Well, Acts 17, 26 tells us this. When Peter, uh, Peter Paul is preaching before uh, the, the people, he says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Now, this is a problem because that one man sinned. That one man, Adam, we've just been through Genesis, he sinned. And it says in Genesis 5 that he had a son in his likeness and his, uh, and his likeness was sinful flesh. And then we see very quickly following that in Genesis 5, this genealogy that has one purpose, which is death reigns because of sin. This, this man had this many sons and he died. And that phrase, and he died, is repeated over and over and over again to make the point that death reigns because of sin. In the children of Adam, in the children of Adam, sin reigns. And there is nothing you can do about it. So we need someone not born of Adam. And this is why the virgin birth is so important. If Jesus was born of Joseph, he was a physical son of Joseph, he would have been born with the blood of Adam and by nature be a sinner. But he was not born of Adam. He was born of the Holy Spirit. And he therefore hasn't got the blood of Adam and is not sin sinful by nature. So he himself is righteous and altogether holy. He is the forefather we need, yet we are still in Adam. So Jesus, of course, dies and gives up his blood and takes on Adam's blood for us. And in his resurrection, his, we are justified and we get his new lifeblood. That's an incredible truth. 
that we have received the blood of Christ. We no longer have the blood of Adam running through our veins, that sinful blood, but we have the blood of Christ covering us. It's why we need to constantly remind ourselves that we are in Christ. In John 1, 12 to 13, it reminds us of this very fact as well, that we are born not by our own will, but by the will of God, it says. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So not your will. You did not will to come to Christ. You did not will to be born again. But because God chose you, He gave you new life in Christ and did away with the forefather Adam so that you now live in Christ as righteous. But maybe you need more evidence. Maybe you just need some logic to understand why you had nothing to do with your salvation. Did you have anything to do with your first birth? Did you cause yourself to be born here in Australia at this very moment? No. Therefore, you had nothing to do with your spiritual new birth either. The deliberate language of talking about being born is to very much say that it had nothing to do with you, that it's through your new birth that you now have faith and you now have a life in Christ. As Peter would say after teaching this, let us bless his name. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. We're not only born again to then live back in our flesh, but we are born again to a living hope. So we aren't born to go off and live our own way as some have taught that because of God's grace we can do whatever we want and sin however we want. No, we are born to a living hope. A new life. The old life has gone and we do not follow the line of Adam which dies, but we follow the line of Christ which lives. The living hope is in Christ who has been raised from the dead. The living hope that we have is that Christ himself, the better Adam, has defeated death and we now walk in his resurrection. That is a grand truth. In John 11:25 he says I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet he shall live though you die you shall live Christ Jesus has already been through the uh, the tomb he has already been buried he has come back to life and we are living in that living hope So that the genealogy in Genesis where it says and he died for us It says, and he will live, and they will live, and she will live, because we have been born again, not to the old way of life in Adam, but into a new way of life, which is what Peter will talk about uh, as we sort of see the gospel weaved into holy living and suffering that comes. So because you have new life, you will live holy. Because you live holy, you will suffer. That is what we'll see Peter emphasize. And of course, because we have been born again to a living hope, let us bless the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this new birth comes with new entitlements, a new lineage. The inheritance that we would have received from Adam is death, but the inheritance that we receive now from Christ in verse 4 is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
Peter has deliberately here used family language. Father, son, birth, new birth, now inheritance. Because we have a new lineage, we have a new father, and our new father has given us a new inheritance. And this inheritance actually mimics him, mimics the triune God. The inheritance is imperishable in respect to our maker, the father, who is called incorruptible in Romans 1.23. It's undefiled like our great priest who is Christ and who has claimed for us this inheritance. He is holy and without defilement, as Hebrews 7.26 says. And it's unfading like the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of, his in, of, of this very inheritance, which is stated in Ephesians 1 verses 12 or 13. God is giving us an inheritance that is bound up within himself. An inheritance that reflects him, that mimics him, that, it, that fills out the whole trinity and that whatever Christ receives, we also will receive because we are heirs with him. Now, if we recall our context, Peter writing to elect exiles, what do you think exiles would want to hear the most? That they have an inheritance, that they own something. The exiles feel like they're, they're, that they don't belong. They feel like they've lost the inheritance. They almost feel apologetic for being here, for being on this earth. It's how the church has pretty much lived for the last 50 years in Australia, to be apologetic for our very presence in this world. Yet Peter is writing to the church to say saints have a backbone. Stand up. You've been born again to a living hope. Your uh, inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven. Christ is the one who is on the throne. He is the king driving back the forces. Brothers and sisters, go forth in the king's authority. This is Peter's charge. As exiles, be the confident ones. As exiles, be the ones who have the inheritance set before you and walking in the authority of the king. Remember that the Great Commission started with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When? When was it given to him? When he defeated death, when he rose from the dead. It's not going to be given to him. He said, it has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them all that I have commanded you. Because I have all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go. Not all authority is going to be given to me at some point. No, it has been given to him now. So we as exiles have every right not to be apologetic for our presence in this world but to stand firm on the truth that we've been born again to a living hope and our inheritance is there with Christ in heaven. We are co-heirs with Christ. So whatever inheritance God the Father has reserved for His Son, He has shares in that for all of us as His adopted children. So what is the inheritance? What is the actual inheritance that we are going to possess? Matthew 5 tells us, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In this great description of the Christian life that, that, that follows on, and we looked at this at church holiday in February, last February, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, 
And if you're poor in spirit, you'll be merciful. And if you're merciful, you'll become meek. And there's this pattern that follows on through the Beatitudes. Well, if we are a Christian and have come to God as poor in spirit and have put on meekness, the inheritance is the earth. We will inherit the earth. Or if we look at Psalm 2, written as a prophetic form, in prophetic form of the crucifixion and the ascension of Christ, as the nations rage and plot in vain, it says this, God the Father speaking to God the Son, ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with an iron rod and dash them in pieces like potter's vessels. What is Christ's inheritance? The nations. The ends of the earth are His possession. The ends of the earth are Christ's and Christ's alone. And we, as co-heirs with Christ, will inherit the nations and the ends of the earth. What does that mean? Although we are exiles today, this earth belongs to the church. This earth belongs to Christ. Although we walk as exiles in a world where we feel like we don't belong and holiness is hated, this world will be the Lord Jesus's. And it's not much of an inheritance for Jesus if God is going to get rid of it, like many believe. The ends of the earth are your possession. Oh, sorry, Jesus, I got rid of that. No, that's, that's not what it says. He is going to establish the new heavens and the new earth here in His glory for His Son and His Son's bride, the church. So we need to take courage. Take courage as exiles. We don't belong because we live holy and holiness is hated in this world. But the King of Kings has kept our inheritance in heaven for us and He has all authority. Therefore, we must go and make more disciples of every nation, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. But for now, the inheritance is kept, but not forever, because Revelation 21, 1-4 tells us that it will come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. It's kept in heaven, but it won't always be. It will be here and we will see God face to face and we'll gaze upon his glory and he himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. The inheritance is sure. The inheritance is secure for those who have been born again to a living hope. And it's so secure in verse five, it reminds us that we aren't kept by ourselves, but we are kept by God's power who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The knowledge that Peter wants us to have is not finished. He has more praise for us to give to God. 
And the praise is that you did not cause your new birth. It was, it was caused by God. Therefore, you aren't going to be sustained by yourself either. You'll be guarded by God's power, which is faith. Through faith. God's power are being guarded through faith. God's power to you is that you will have faith. That you will trust and believe in every promise of God. And right now, you may not be able to think about how you would endure certain sufferings, certain persecutions, certain dishonoring. That's because right now you have not been given that faith that you need for that moment. When Mark, in Mark 9, when Jesus came along a man who wanted his child to be healed, he says, anything is possible if you just believe. And the man responds, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. We must ask God for faith and to increase our faith. It is not dependent upon you. You can't muster up more faith. It is through God that He will give you His own power to guard you for a salvation that is coming in in the last time. So this is to say that we can't fall away. If God has caused you to be born again, He is not going to let you be unborn. It's not possible. But you may say, but I know this person who was really faithful and they did so much for God. Well, firstly, they did nothing for God because no one can do anything for Him. And secondly, their faith was probably dependent upon themselves, which is why it failed. The real believer has faith and his faith comes from God. And as John writes in his letter, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. 1 John clearly tells us that if a person wanders off back into the world, they are not of the church. They have not been born again. So do you know what faith is? Faith is not a mystical, mysterious, spiritual force that we conjure up through incantation and religious ceremonies. No, faith is simply believing in something that is true. Or something that is, or or believing that something in in a certain way, that is a certain way. We aren't waiting for warm, fuzzy feelings. We are musing, meditating on the Word of God, so that when suffering comes, which it will, as Peter will say, which it will, we will know what to believe. And by God's power, He will give us more faith to believe that He is good and glorious in the midst of such pain. So that we can sustain secure when our life is rocked. Which in this life, it will be rocked quite often. So church, what is our practical wisdom? What do we walk away with practically to put into action in our lives? Peter wants you to have a backbone. To stand up as exiles. To put more Rio in the foundation. So that you're stable and unmoved. He wants you to be secure in the living hope which is guarded not by yourself but by His power which is faith in His knowledge, His Word, which will lead, of course, to worship. We are, as Peter will go on to say, to stand against the strongholds of this world. We are to fight vile vile practices in this world, like abortion and same-sex marriage. 1 Peter is saying you can't lose. The King is on the throne. You can't lose. You have a living hope. 
we will establish God's kingdom. 1 Peter wants the church to be so secure in who they are and their identity that they are worshipping at every point, no matter what suffering. And as Peter did himself, suffered dishonour for the name of Christ and went with the church and prayed for more boldness. Would we suffer dishonour for the name of Christ because we have been born again to a living hope with an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for your great mercies that you caused each of us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. And Lord, we are not guarded by ourselves, but we are sustained and guarded by your power. Lord, may we grow in knowledge. And through your power, would we put our faith in that knowledge. And because of our faith, would we worship you. Would we give praise to you. And would we stand up with confidence, although exiles, knowing that we are secure, that we do not need to be apologetic for our existence but rather standing in the authority of Christ the king who is on his throne the king who has all authority in heaven and on earth who has said it himself he will possess the ends of the earth the nations will be his and those who will dwell here are his his people his bride forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth lord we long for it we cannot wait but until then may we be faithful servants of the kingdom of heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.